1: London's first gun crime occurred early on the morning of the 13th of November 1536. Its victim was Robert Packington, a wealthy London mercer or dealer in fine fabrics who lived just off Cheapside and was killed on his way to Mass. His death has much to tell us about the story of the Reformation in England and the crucial year of 1536. To explore that story with me today, my guest is Derek Wilson, one of the most prolific writers on the Tudor period and indeed on the 17th century and 15th centuries. His books include Mrs. Luther and Her Sisters, Women of the Reformation, The People's Bible, The Remarkable History of the King James Version, and Uncrowned Kings, the Black Legend of the Dudleys, which John Guy described as masterly, stimulating and authoritative. But Derek has also written novels, and published under the name D.K. Wilson are a trilogy that explore the adventures and misadventures of London goldsmith Thomas Treviot. Each is based on a real historical mystery. And the first in the series, The First Horseman, tells the tale of Packington's murder. So I asked Derek to bring together his fictional world and his historical knowledge to discuss this real-life historical crime. Derek, thank you so much for joining me today today. Because you have been such an inspiration to me. You were one of the first people who befriended me in the Tudor history world. And you have written more books than I can possibly dream of writing over such a range of wonderful things. And today we're going to be talking about one of your novels, The First Horseman, based on a fascinating story from a year that we have both thought a lot about, 1536. But perhaps we could start by setting us some context because in this novel you evoke a picture of 16th century London and I wonder if you could introduce us to that city.
2: Well, we tend to think of the 1530s as the beginnings of the English Reformation but people then didn't think in those terms, this is just looking back, people then were aware of various changes and things that were happening in their world that were confusing, troubling and they didn't know how to respond to. There'd always been people who questioned the religious basis of European life, but this seems to be happening more and more. So we have the church leaders on the defensive, and we have politicians, because, of course, politics and religion are all bound up together, thinking, what does this mean? How do we react to this? And this confused and troubled time brought bubbling to the surface extraordinary character, Thomas Cromwell, who came from nowhere, nobody knew who he was, and yet, within comparatively short periods of time, he's establishing English policy. The king makes him the person in charge of religious affairs in England. And there are those who welcome that change, and others, of course, were absolutely scandalized by it. The old nobility, like Norfolk, just appalled. I mean, it was quite impossible this upstart, this nobody, could start dismantling the monasteries, for example chucking images out of churches and that sort of thing. Appalling. All this was going on. And then on the other side, you have a character like William Tyndale, who Henry hates like poison. So Tyndale goes overseas, is pursued by Henry's agents, and eventually captured and put on trial in the Netherlands and burned at the stake as a heretic. Now, this happens in October 1536. How do people react to that? I'm sure there were lots of people who nodded their heads and said, oh, yes, about time to and others who were appalled that an Englishman was brutally done to death on the continent in a Spanish-controlled territory. This was appalling. So many presuppositions and new ideas and things are bubbling around, bumping into each other, that it becomes a very confusing time. And in the middle of this confusing time, people get killed.
1: And such is what happens on the 13th of November, 1536, But before we get to that, I want to give you a thought experiment to give us a bit more of a sense of context in terms of the events as well as some of the ideas around. If you were an editor of a newspaper in the 1530s, unfortunately for us, Derek, of course, such things don't exist. But if it had existed and you were editing it, what stories and headlines would you have run on the 13th of November or perhaps the 14th of November about the previous day?
2: Well, you've got so much that's going on. You've got stories of monasteries being closed. You've got the spreading of insurrection in the Northern Shires, which started in October in Lincolnshire, and was now spreading further north. So that's worrying. You've got stories of monasteries being closed, stories of clergy being attacked. And then I think the outworking of Tyndale's death is still carrying on. Then all of a sudden, something happens that gives me my shock banner headline. A London merchant has been murdered. Robert Packington, a prominent London merchant and Member of Parliament, is walking from his home just on the south side of Cheapside, crossing Cheapside to go to the Mercer's Chapel for early morning mass. It's still dark, it's misty. Perhaps he's carrying a lantern. Perhaps he has a servant carrying a lantern in front of him. There are other people around because things start early in those days, but all is reasonably quiet. Somebody steps up to him, there's a single shot, he falls to the ground. People start to cluster round, and the assassin just melts away in the crowd. Who was it? How could it be done? And this poses so many questions. It must have been premeditated. Somebody had studied Packington's daily or weekly routine, knew where to find him, where would be the best place. And one of the things that seemed to have shocked most people at the time was the weapon used to kill him.
1: Yes, because this is the first gun crime in London. So tell us about this weapon and actually what it says about firearm technology.
2: Personal firearms at that time were pretty bulky things, probably a metre or more in length. They took two hands to operate. You had to strike a match, set something that was light or glowing, which would fall down into the flash pan and ignite the powder. And so you've got a bulky weapon. Two hands, a glowing match. It's not a very convenient weapon for an assassin. But then sometime around 15, 16, thereabouts, someone invented the wheel lock pistol, which was short. didn't require an elaborate mechanism. didn't require a lighted match, which struck a spark from a flint. And so with that sort of a gun, you could have it concealed under your cloak, take it out, fire it, put it back under your cloak and walk away. One almost wants to say this is created the 16th-century assassin because it is a custom-made assassin's weapon. So it's a deliberate, planned attack on a leading London citizen.
1: Yes. So you've mentioned that Packington was a merchant. What else do we know about him and why he might have been the target of this brutal attack?
2: Nobody at the time, or nobody who read about it later, thought there was anything other than religiously motivated. Why? Because according to John Fox writing later, Packington was a bold critic of the clergy. He was not only a merchant and a leader of London society, he was a member of parliament and stood up in the House of Commons and criticised the behaviour of the clergy. And the clergy, I think, or some of the leading clergy are particularly sensitive to this sort of thing. And so it seems right from the beginning that religion was the motivation. It's fascinating that a few weeks after, this happened. A pamphlet was circulating in England, published on the continent and coming over to England, about the death of a chap called Khan, which had happened 22 years before. He was a merchant. He had got into a furious row with the clergy. He had been arrested on the orders of the bishop, put in the Lollard's Tower in St Paul's Cathedral, where he was found hanging And it's pretty certain, I think, from what evidence we have, that it was a botched attempt to make a murder look like suicide. Now, isn't it odd that that old story should have been revived within weeks of the death of another land merchant And it's always been assumed that religion was the motivation. When there was a lot of anti-clericalism around one of my favorite stories of the period relates to my own part of the world here in Devon. The squire of Biddeford was passing the churchyard one day and he saw a fracas going on and went over to investigate. And he found a group of enraged villagers standing round an open grave confronting the vicar, who was refusing to take the service of committal until he received his mortuary fee, which he was demanding the dead man's cow, which was the only valuable possession the poor fellow had. And his neighbors were understandably enraged. But the squire had a very short way of solving this. He said, put the vicar in the open grave. Start filling it in. We'll see how long it takes for him to change his tune. (laughs) You've got that sort of thing happening here, there, in different parts of the country. And there's a swell of anti-clericalism. You don't need heresy. You don't need weird Lutheran ideas or anything. You just got this sense that there's a them and us. There's enough criticism going on for... Many of the ecclesiastical hierarchies would be really worried.
1: So what sort of complaints were people making about the clergy, about the church at this time?
2: The clergy had both spiritual authority and actual temporal authority. Many of the clergy were no better educated or better qualified than their peasant farmer neighbours. But they have their clergy status. This, for example, protected them from common law. If they were taken to court, they were not prosecuted under common law. They were prosecuted under Ecclesiastical law. If it found somebody guilty, it might be just a question of inflicting a penance upon them of some sort, rather than what other people might have thought was their due. So you've got that sort of thing. You've got clergy who were not as good as they might have been. Even today in our secular age, if a clergyman or a prominent religious leader does something naughty makes headlines, well it did then too. There was a sense of these people going around saying, do as I say, not as I do. So there's a lot of that resentment going on and a lot of anti-clericalism, some of it merited, some of it's perhaps not. We can't look at this and say, ah, oh, here's the Reformation and actually here are these Lutheran ideas and so on. It's much more vague, much more multifaceted than that. You know? Then when Tyndale comes along and people have the ability to read the Bible for themselves and many of them then learn to read in order to do just that, then they're putting themselves on a par or on perhaps above a par with their clergy. When some say, well, perhaps his fellow Luther has the right sort of ideas, after all. Later on, of course, as other prominent religious leaders come to the fore. We get this sort of fragmentation of what we now come to call Protestantism. People following Luther, people following Calvin, people following Zwingli, and so on. Various kinds of radical religion. And that is something we emerges later, and here we're dealing with the emotional ground territory under which new ideas could ferment desperate acts, like the murder of Packington.
1: But I think it's crucial that you point out that we come to call these people Protestant. During this period of time, Protestant really in England is only used to talk about German followers of Luther. And Packington absolutely is one of those who's anti-clerical. He's denounced the covetousness, the cruelty of the clergy. But he's not a full-blown Protestant. Can you tell us what we know about his faith and how it fits in with the church of Henry VIII in 1536?
2: We don't really know what his theology was. What was he doing when he was murdered? He was going to Mass, something which he obviously did on a regular basis. So he wasn't discarding the service of the Mass, and he wasn't presumably discarding the theology which lay behind that. We have no evidence that he had accepted Luther's rather muted concept of what the Mass is all about, what the body and blood of Christ represented in the bread and wine actually meant, I don't know whether he was troubled by these sort of things or not.
1: But we've got a chap who's going to mass and at the same time importing copies of English Bibles from overseas, which might seem to us to be something of a paradox. But I suppose it's an indication of what will later become to be known as Protestant and Catholic is only being painfully created.
2: So, yes, Tyndale's New Testament is flooding into the country in the underground market Church authorities are frowning at this and trying to stop it. But I can imagine intelligent people like Crackington are saying, no, this is the word of God. This is what our faith is based on. Why shouldn't we read it and understand it better? I'm not here to challenge the church at all. It's our book. I want to know more about it. But then, to go on and say, well, but then, of course, reading Tyndale's interleaved comments in his New Testament, where he points out that certain errors have crept into how the Church interprets the New Testament, then people like Packington are absorbing these contrary ideas as well as the pure milk of the Gospels.
1: And I suppose he's relatively rare. I'm struck by the fact that... We know that Packington lived at the sign of the leg on Soper Lane, which is a really wonderful indication that most of the time people's addresses are being given in ways that could be identified by the illiterate and that the vast majority of people are illiterate. But Packington seems to have been rather a rare beast in being someone who is actually reading these kind of revolutionary religious ideas, as far as we can tell, anyway.
2: He's a merchant, so he is literate. He has dealings not only with his colleagues in England, but also with trading partners on the continent. So he is much more in the swim of what is happening internationally than the ordinary Joe blogs in the street. He is obviously aware of what Luther was doing, what was happening. This period, shall so we say from the 1520 through to 1540 perhaps, is this confused period of ideas rushing around and Things are changing, and of course this extraordinary fact that the king has now put in charge of religious affairs this man, Thomas Cromwell, who had read, who knew Luther's works, who had read Erasmus's work, and set about making it a part of government policy to trim the sails of the clergy and to change the whole way in which the English people thought. What caused the anarchy?
1: How did medieval migrants shape the language I'm speaking right now?
2: Who won the Hundred Years' War?
1: Could England's lost patron saint be buried under a tennis court in Suffolk?
2: How did England's last medieval king end up under a car park?
1: And were the Dark Ages really all that dark? I'm Dr Kat Jarman.
2: And I'm Matt Lewis. On Gone Medieval, we'll uncover the most exciting and unexpected stories about the Middle Ages, hearing from the best and brightest minds.
1: We will disentangle fact from fiction, bring you the latest discoveries, and reveal how the so-called Dark Ages laid the foundations for much of the world we're living in today.
2: Subscribe to Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts.
3: Say hello to a new era of mental health care.
1: And I wonder if you see Cromwell's hand in something we've already mentioned is happening at this time, which, of course, is the dissolution of the monasteries, which is just starting. It's really striking in terms of the Packington case as well, because Packington is shot on his way to his church, St Thomas of Acre, which is a church founded in 1227 at the birthplace of St Thomas Beckett, who, of course, famously obeyed the Pope over the king. And it's also the headquarters of the Knights of St Thomas. And these are things... That will be targeted in subsequent years after 1536 by Henry VIII. Do you hold Cromwell responsible for targeting those who support the Pope over the King and orders such as the Knights of St. Thomas?
2: I think that the dissolution of the monasteries began because Cromwell wanted to remove those nests of traditional papalism, those centres where men, many of them scholars, met to continue to boost the accepted dogmas of the Middle Ages. This is why Henry backed him, because this is undermining the papacy. That's what it's about. Henry is a man who hates Luther-like poison, and yet is, in effect, backing that movement, which stems from Luther's insistence that the Pope is antichrist. Everywhere you look on this, you find sort of confusion and crashing ideas and twisted motives
1: And someone who's caught up in it, of course, is Robert Packington. And this is a whodunit. In your novel, The First Horseman, your protagonist tries to solve this real-life mystery. So tell us what's the historical evidence that we have to go on to identify the murderer and how trustworthy is it?
2: It's one of those things that can only be done in fiction. We can't tell the Packington story as a factual historical event because we just don't know. It carried on being a subject of interest that was brought up over and over again. It was in the reign of Elizabeth that John Fox, the martyrologist, his acts and monuments of the Christian religion, although he changed various editions of his book, he changed what he wrote about the Packington event, eventually he put the finger on a man called John instant who later became Dean of St. Paul's in 1540 as the man who had instigated this murder. And he based that on what he said was a deathbed confession by Innocent. Well, that's fine. Can you sort of look at Incent's career? And you realize that he is a blatantly career cleric, and that he was willingly used by Cromwell as a visitor of monasteries. He was actually involved in the process of closing monasteries down. So he is organising the murder of someone who was criticising the church. And it doesn't quite seem to add up. He's a career politician. He is a career cleric. His career was built upon going with the prevailing wind. Raphael Hollingshead, in 1577, claimed to have identified the man who actually pulled the trigger. doesn't give him a name, but he says there was a man who was subsequently hanged for another crime. But he, again, on his deathbed, confessed to this particular murder. That's all we've got by way of evidence. Can we write case closed on the Packington murder? That's sure we can. <laughs> and what we can say is that the Packington murder tells us a heck of a lot about what was going on in the religious life of, of England at that time. We can actually begin to explain how this immense change, which we now call the Reformation, could actually take place. Motives were mixed. I'm sure incense motives were mixed if he was the man we say he was. If he was in any way connected with that murder, well, he didn't just change his tune, presumably. If he did instigate that crime, it wasn't something that he stuck to. He very soon saw his future lay in going along with the the Cromwellian changes.
1: So that's fascinating. It seems that Packington's death should be to us an indicator of desperately opposed religious faith and somebody being executed because their faith doesn't align and obviously there must have been something going on but if it is as you say innocent, it shows actually that even those who were sufficiently persuaded of their own position in terms of faith to commission a murder could actually discover the way to succeed it was to bend like a reed in the wind rather than hold to that position so it says something about the flexibility of belief as well as the entrenchment at this time which of what I thought you were going to say and actually what you said is the opposite it shows us possibly that this is all to play for This is happening in the year 1536. It's a year you've described in your books as Henry VIII's Annus Horribilis, and inspired by you, it was a year I wrote a book about. How pivotal do you think this year was in the end for Henry VIII and for the progress of the Reformation, whatever we like to think of that as, in England?
2: Well, it was the year of three queens. Henry's first queen died in January. His second queen he murdered in May and married his third queen in May and religion gets caught up in what is basically a dynastic situation. Henry, wants a male heir, and Cromwell realised that he needed to persuade Henry that going along with religious change was the way to achieve what he wanted to bring the country to accept his political programme. I sometimes think that Harry had these three great first ministers, Wolsey, Moore, and Cromwell, Woolsey succeeded by applying the principle, give the king what he wants. Moore succeeded and eventually failed by saying, tell the king what he ought to want. Trouble proceeded on the basis of persuade the king what I want is what he wants.
1: That's very good. But given that you've fictionalised this period, I suppose as a historian who hasn't written a novel, I would love to know your thoughts on what you think the challenges are of fictionalising this period. How does one write about faith? How do you create a character that has the kind of mindset of the period? And that seems to me very difficult.
2: That's the thing, the mindset of the period. I think you've got to, as far as you can, immerse yourself in the period. You've got to think the way people thought, feel the way people felt at that time. And this is why I think where people go wrong, the historical characters that they then fictionalise, they fictionalise in 21st century terms. We understand ambitious politicians of our own age, how they behave, how they get where they are, how they succeed, how they fail. So it's a temptation if you don't know that the 16th century is different from the 21st century. The temptation to say, well, he must have been this kind of a man. Someone like Cromwell could pursue his own career, be ruthless and so on, and cozy up to all the right people and get rid of all the people who are standing in his way and so on. Well, that might work for now, but it wasn't that simple. then, And you certainly can't take religion out of the equation. Whether you believe or not, you have to have some pretty clear ideas about what 16th century religion was like, what people really believed, and how their beliefs shaped what they did and how they lived. And if you don't, you can't write about any individual, whether fictional or fact, living in that time.
1: And this is a novel that, with Packington's death, exploring this first gun crime in London, therefore puts religion back at the heart of a 16th century story. And that is one of the reasons why I would recommend it to anyone listening. as a wonderful Tudor mystery story. And in fact, the first novel that we've talked about on Not Just the Tudors... So it's been a great pleasure, Derek, to speak to you today about this book and indeed about writing history of the spirit and fiction more generally. Thank you so much. Thank you so very much for your support for Not Just the Tudors. Please do subscribe or leave a comment wherever you get your podcasts. I'd be delighted to read them. And I'm excited to share with you that if you want more fascinating Tudor content, then you can now subscribe to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Just follow the link in the notes for this show. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age,